Welcome to the SaaS Marketing Superstars Podcast with your host, Aaron Sikowski. This is the show where we uncover proven growth strategies from CMOs and marketing leaders behind some of the fastest growing SaaS companies. Now, this episode's a little different than my normal podcasts, and that's because Lloyd and I quickly got into a deep, raw discussion about family, faith, happiness, entrepreneurship. In our conversation, Lloyd shares his story of how he used community-led growth to grow his company to $10 million in annual revenue and his community attraction conference to over 120,000 people. I really enjoyed this chat with Lloyd. I learned a lot from him, and I hope you will too. Hey, superstars, thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Aaron Zakowski, and my guest today is Lloyd Lobo. Lloyd Lobo is an entrepreneur, podcast host, and community builder. As the co-founder of fintech platform Boast.ai, he leveraged the community-led growth model to bootstrap the company to over $10 million in revenue and secure over $100 million in funding. He also co-founded TractionConf, a community empowering over 100,000 innovators through connections, content, and capital. And recently, Lloyd is publishing his new book, From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands and Community-Led Growth, which is coming out in a few weeks in early September. Where are you based today? I'm in Los Angeles. How about you? Okay, cool. I'm actually currently in Dubai. I mean, San Francisco is home base. That's why I never assume anymore. I just ask people, like, where are you calling out of today? Because, I I mean, San Francisco was home base for a long time. Then I left the day-to-day of the company um, and just decided to leave even go somewhere where people think about work and life very differently. Because yeah. the Bay Area, everyone was like, oh, when are you going to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing? And I'm like, dude, like, I rented a house, me and my wife, two kids, three kids, two dogs. We just left. <laughs> Incredible. Wow. I hear yeah. Dubai is the place to be these days. Dubai is great because, um, you know, I think, have you got kids? I have six kids. What? Yeah, so yeah. see, like, yeah, you know how hard it is, right? The thing is, like, a lot of my life my wife's an er physician and so a lot of our life was really stressful with like kids right like doing a startup high growth company she's in er uh, here dubai makes childcare very affordable and easy so i don't pick up the kids nanny care all of that is extremely affordable it's easy yeah. honestly i since i came here my quality of life may have like 5 10x because I imagine, yeah. because I'm i Arabic, yeah not really. I speak maybe 30% Arabic because I was born, although I was born in Kuwait, my parents are from India and they've got like some Portuguese thing in them because like the Portuguese had colonized parts of India, like Goa. Uh, so, so like much like Brazil. So it's a weird thing. My name, my last name is Portuguese. My parents were born in India. I was born in Kuwait because they were working there as expats. Wow. I speak 30% Arabic. I left in my like early teens, mid-teens. Mm-hmm. Um, if I spend time speaking with someone Arabic, I- I'll probably get it. I speak Hindi and Urdu very well, which my, my parents are big Bollywood fanatics. And so would show me a lot of Bollywood movies growing up. So the thing, the funny thing about Dubai is English is the first language. Everyone speaks English, literally everywhere. Um uh-huh. Dubai looks like Miami, the beach side, and the other side looks like Singapore. So everyone speaks English. Um, everyone else also speaks like 90%, 80% of the people speak like Hindi, Urdu, and then a very small portion, maybe 10%, uh, 15, but like, let's say 20% speak Arabic and, and they wow. don't feel like they got to approach it first. So you never 100%. have the need to speak Arabic. It's interesting. I, I lived a bunch of years in Israel and I have a lot of Israeli friends who are now spending a lot of time over in Dubai for work yeah. and vacations and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it just seems like an awesome place. And just, just the fact that you've got this Arab country that's getting along well with Israel and all that, like to me, that's just awesome. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize that the language was just so easy. 
Yeah, it is. It is really. It, it's really, really easy in every possible way, right? Like um, convenience of it, like nanny care, pick drop, even the gasoline comes home. Honestly, uh, I feel like in in the states, no matter how much money you have, you always like live a certain way, which is a lot of running around and work about work. Yeah, and Dubai even you can be middle class and have nanny care and support and all this help. So then what happens is this place is designed to give you time back in your day. And I realized actually like all our life, we chase success looking for happiness, right? Success being the definition of money. But when that comes, it's like, you're still not happy if you're chasing like, it's like money is only good if it buys freedom. And for me, Dubai was a good decision because one it didn't feel like, you know, we could go to Bali, like think about it, go to Bali or go to Costa Rica or Hawaii, but that's not living in a metropolitan city where, you know, like it's, it's my wife was against like going somewhere in the wilderness. It's like the kids need to have like American education, mm-hmm. have like best in class uh, upbringing. And, and so Dubai was the only place we found that made sense that checked the other boxes like safety, um, community, convenience like the convenience is is very important man i i I don't know like you have six kids you like uh, how do you manage i'm just curious god god takes care of everything what is that i said god takes care of everything i mean it it sounds like a joke a little bit but it's yeah you know i i just have faith that you know it's going to work i keep going forward you know my kids are all we're here in la super expensive all six kids in private school um, yeah. Our expenses are crazy. You know, I've been, you know, my business has been up and down over the last couple of years. I was running a marketing agency for a bunch of years, recently shut it down because it wasn't doing well enough just because, you know, we're working mostly SaaS companies and they've been struggling. So that's trickled mm-hmm. down to us. And it's, you know, God has provided every day of my life, everything I need in one way or another. Today is always handled. And I try not to worry about tomorrow, even though I do. And, you uh, know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I truly believe in, in that, right? Like I had no money for the longest time and I did fail startup after fail startup. My mom's a very pious woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, before every deal, <laughs> I would only tell her, please pray for me. Please pray for me. Yeah. Every small deal, big deal. Yeah. And I'm not as religious. She is. She's a very pious woman. And literally it all just worked out. Like, you know, everything, even the book, I'm like, please pray, please pray. She's like, listen, I have equity in, in everything you do because for some reason you have, ask and then you call me and you thank me so i I truly believe god takes care of everything because we didn't have uh, we didn't have the money and then we sold half the company and we did well but like the thing is when i sold half the company i ended up actually depressed because i'm like what do i do and then i found a new purpose through the book and 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 everything and, and moved here but man like it's just the help right makes a big difference like if you have no help you're struggling how old are your kids by the way my youngest is four. My oldest is 18, just graduated high school. Ah, so, okay. So, you, you, so, so like you got a few teenagers. I've got like three teenagers, like I got four, five, 11, 13, 16, 18. So I got a few. Yeah, so, you, so you're really managing only two kids from a two little uh, kids. sort of, yeah, two little kids from a like logistical perspective. The others, eleven to eighteen, is probably self-managed a little bit. But more or less. Actually, you got the, the, the difference with kids. Like little kids are more physically tiring. Older kids are more emotionally tiring because they're just oh, getting yeah. more 
complex things in life that, you know, they're going to get themselves dressed and bathe themselves and they make food by themselves, but they're just, they've got more complex things going on in their life that you've got to guide them yeah. to make good decisions. So it's just different. Your wife works as well? She's a teacher at the kid's school. So that, yeah. that helps balance things out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I hope like uh, uh, being a teacher at the kid's private school either gets you free or steep discount. That's correct. That's a big part of it. <laughs> And yeah, she's yeah. going there every day. She's there on premises. She's doing the carpool back and forth. She knows the kids' teachers. She's just, mm. listen, she works super hard and she does, you know, she's a great mom and takes yeah, care yeah. of Yeah, that's what I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to have married my wife. I mean, we were dating since our teens anyway. We, she got into med school in second year of undergrad and just been working. But she's she's great at what she does at work, but she also manages the house. I'm like, I just had one job. I need to make one. I need to make one business successful, so we could have some some financial freedom. You had like manage work, manage the kids, deal with the house, make sure finances, everything. Like, and and I don't know how she did it because I only had one job. I I, I think <laughs> us us men certainly underestimate our women until we realize how much they're accomplishing and and how powerful and capable they are, and you know, careers, 100%. mothers, households, everything. It's they're incredible. I feel when you bring your vulnerable self, others find a connection in that, right? Otherwise, everyone's crushing it. And I hate going on this and saying, I'm crushing it. I cr No, I'm not. Like, you know, as I look back on the journey, everything that feels like a framework today, back then when we were in it, felt like we were throwing spaghetti on the wall over and over and over again and something stuck today it's like oh it's a profound learning it's a framework yeah. <laughs> back then it it's, was it's, spaghetti it's easy to look back and, and say oh of course i succeeded because i did x y and z but when you're in it it's you're just lost and groping in the dark and trying to figure out works and hopefully something mm -hmm. sticks like you said but um yeah no the vulnerability is important i mean you know my business has been struggling lately you know i've, I've been very public about that um but at the same time i look at it as my as my life as a whole and a like we spoke about before you know faith in god that like my worries for tomorrow, like, thank God I have what I need today. Like I will pay my bills this month. Tomorrow we'll figure out next month. And you know, there's resources if I need them, but God's providing for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. But on the other hand, you know, your money is not the main purpose of life. Like our money should be here to serve us and our families to do the things and raise our families the way that we want to do. So when I look at my family and my kids are healthy and they're well-behaved and they're good and they're kind and all the things I want them to grow up to be at all the different stages where they are, like, I feel like I'm the most blessed man in the world and I would never change with anybody because, you know, my relationship with my wife and my kids and everything is fantastic. So like, okay, money, we'll figure it out. Like, it's all good. You know, there's some vulnerability there, but you know, the important things are in alignment and that's really all that matters. You know, what's, what's funny. It's a very interesting story. All my life, I chased success, right? Looking for happiness. And I, I actually didn't spend time with the family at all. My wife would always say, listen, I need you to stop and smell the roses. And I'd be like, listen, we'll do this vacation at, at this time. It's like, nobody cares about that. The compound interest on yeah. like not being phones down and having dinner with us every day is huge. Like you can't compensate for it with one trip. And then during the pandemic, when we got into this deal with the growth equity firm to buy half the company and things got like 10X busier, due diligence stretch and everything. And I got worse and she's like, you know, like you need to take a break. You need to chill. You need to spend time with the kids. They're, you're going to miss these years. And I kept saying, listen, we'll go to Bora Bora when the deal goes through. And she's like, nobody cares about it. Right. You know what happened? The deal went through. We booked everyone at Bora Bora, my family, 
kids, my parents. Two days before the trip to Bora Bora, I wake up unable to breathe. I had bilateral COVID pneumonia. I was hospitalized. I was on oxygen. And man, that hit me so hard because the only thing that hit my mind was if I died today, my wife's last words would be true. You never spend any time with any of us. Powerful. Right? It's not yeah. the money in your bank, man. It's the people around your tombstone. Don't worry about you today. know what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know what's funny is old habits die hard, right? I made a promise, but then came back. And, and since we had raised all this money, the company grew to from like 30-ish people to over 100 people. And I actually got worse. I got like, you know, so bad that my daughter, who was seven and a half at the time, comes August of that year. Now, this the COVID incident was January, August of that year. And she's like, Dad, you got worse. Everything you said coming out of the hospital was a lie. Wow. And I said, what when do you mean? When you hear it your wife, it's one thing. When you hear from the kid, it, like, it hits hard. It, it hits so hard. And she's, she's a very bright kid. And I'm like, listen, you know, things have gotten chaotic. I don't even know what I do in the company anymore. We've had so many people. We got to make sure we do right by them, right? And she's like, why don't you go and work for somebody who thinks like you so I can have my dad back? And that was insane. But I still didn't learn. Two weeks later, I was an offsite in Austin with my co-founder. I pick up the phone. My, my phone's always down right during meetings. We have the phone and there's like 20 some odd missed calls. And it's my wife's best friend. She's like, you're an asshole. She's like, you did it again. And I'm like, yeah, trying to make sense of it. And she's like, your wife's in labor. And for the third time, you're not home. You're at a company offsite or doing something to do with work. I need you to take the next flight and come back. And the next flight was not until the next morning, flew back and probably an hour after I got to the hospital, I saw the birth of my third kid. And, and what had happened was like, you know, startups are like pirates, right? And suddenly we went from being pirate to being Navy. We hired all these big company execs when the growth equity firm stepped in, grew from like 30, 40 people to over a hundred people in a short amount of time. So I was frictioning with a lot of execs as I used to be the face of the company, I ran product, I ran GTM. We got to like 10 million ARR with no marketing team really. So a lot of like both the founders were stretching a lot. Mm -hmm. And so when when the new execs came in, I was at loggerheads with a lot of them. And I, all that stress combined, I go into a board meeting and I said, you got to fire these execs. Like, you, you know, they're not going to work out. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, you've had a rough year. COVID. Just had a kid, hired, we hired so many people. Why don't you take a paternity leave? And in six months, we'll figure out, you know, the right direction for you. And man, that's when the rug got swept under my feet, right? Like my wife kept saying, stop and smell the roses, stop and smell the roses. And, and so then they're like, take a paternity leave. When you tell a founder, take a paternity leave, you know, writing's on the wall. Yep. And I go back at home after that call and uh, I hug my wife and I cry, man, for 10 minutes. And I'm I'm like, listen, I'm really sorry for all the times you needed me. And I put the company first. Today, the company doesn't need me. And you're the only person standing here. So th this, this is what I tell people right now is like, you know, your first community is your family. Spend the time with them while it lasts because the money is not going to be worth it 
right? It's, it's never the destination or the journey. It's the companions that matter the most. Who cares if you have all the money in the world, but not the people that you love and care to spend it with? Right, for sure. And I, and I think one of the things that, you know, as parents, we sometimes think we, listen, there's one end of the spectrum where we're not spending enough time with our, with our kids and we're not home and all that. And that's the problem. But when it comes to the quality of time and connection with the kids, at least in my experiences, we often overthink how much time that really is. Meaning if you can give a kid 10 minutes of undivided attention every day, help them with their homework, play a game with them, you know, read them a story before bed, like whatever the thing is, eat dinner with them, but your, your phone's away, you're with them. That one kid for that 10 minutes, the kid is a center of your universe. They know their love. They, they know you're a part of their day, all that kind of stuff. And, and however many kids you got, if you could just give each one that 10 minutes of connection one-on-one each day, sometimes it could be a couple of kids together at the same time, but like phones away, distractions away, not watching TV together, just doing something. All it takes. You don't need hours and hours and hours of the time with the kids. I mean, that's great if you could do it. But we're busy, right? But just that little bit of a focus, the kid knows they're loved and that you're the center of the world. And that lasts forever. It it builds the confidence that stays with them forever to have that emotional support. You know, a lot of what success in anything, in relationships, in life, in business, is nothing but compound interest on consistency. Doing a little better every day is a lot more impactful than trying to do it all at once because nobody remembers it. Right. And, and it's it's a very interesting story. Also tries ties back to community and, and our company boast. So we grew by hosting a lot of events and building community in-person events. When the pandemic happened, we had to cancel a big conference. And now like this has been a big part of our BD efforts and warming leads and whatnot. They cancel a conference. There's like 55, 60 speakers confirmed. I didn't want to do a virtual summit because for me, doing a virtual summit on a Zoom and if it fails, it's a disaster. Yeah. And at the same time, I can't sit through a virtual summit. So what we did was we reached out to all the speakers and said, why don't you come on a live AMA once a week? And then we extended it twice a week. And we had all the speakers lined up for a whole year as mm-hmm. a function of one conference canceling. And that compound interest on doing one live webinar a week that extended to two over a two-year period grew our database from 30-some-odd thousand subscribers to over 100,000 subscribers in, in those two years, just week after week after week. And so that's your point, right? Like just 10 minutes a day is enough. And it's like at the end of the year, all they remember is 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 minutes is like, my dad spends all the time with me. Yeah. It's the same thing with this being in front of people once or twice a week for an hour every week and end of the year. It's like they have a personal relationship with you and your subscriber base grows. So that was the correlation. Community-led growth. <laughs> That's your thing. You wrote the book, you built the company, you got the funding, you built the life that you wanted, we just described. Um, community-led growth. What is it? What does that mean? Community-led growth to me is part of my DNA, right? It's really funny. And I, I'll just give you quick highlights of, of how I came across it unknowingly. Yeah. So like I said, my parents are from India. We're working in Kuwait. That's where I was born. But my mom grew up in the slums of India. So all my childhood summers, summer vacations were spent in the slums of India, where watching TV was a communal thing. Eating was a communal thing. It would rain all the time. Puddles would become ponds. Going to the bathroom, man, was a communal thing. They had like four walls and an aluminum roof with 10 kids, my grandparents, and just people were in and out of that house. 
Fast forward a few years, the Gulf War hits, and I get to experience as a kid probably the largest evacuation movement on the planet when a time where no phones, no internet, security had lapsed, every building became a sub-community that communicated with the next, the next, the next, organized supplies, organized food, organized shelter, communicated with embassies. And as a kid, I felt so strongly a part of that greater purpose of creating impact that I felt like a little Rambo running aside. And, and you know, that was my next experience, not only with community, but also the entrepreneurial spirit. In 2023, we think entrepreneurship is about making money and flying private jets. But to me, entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurial spirit is about taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. And so those were my experiences. Fast forward a few years, we end up moving to Canada, finished engineering. I wanted to get into entrepreneurship. I asked somebody, what's the best skill I could learn? They said, by far, communication, because it's everything. Like from convincing your spouse to convincing your customers, you need to communicate. It's the rails of everything we do. So I said to myself, I'm an awkward engineer. I can't really talk. What's the best skill? I, what's the best way I could learn to communicate? And I said, let's go into sales. You got, if you're not good at something, put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that something over and over again so you get better at it. And so I got into cold calling, which transitioned me into selling, which transitioned me into running GTM and product, and then eventually led me to start my own company. But in those years that I wanted to learn about sales and marketing, there was not a lot of content around digital marketing. Everything I used to find on, on sales and online marketing was coming up from HubSpot. HubSpot had this inbound marketing community that I joined, and that became my community, my tribe. I learned a lot from them. Even I remember Gary Vaynerchuk had a video marketing course on there <laughs> in 2005, right? And talk about compound interest. He believed in video. He yeah. did it. He did it. He did it today. That chubby little young guy is Gary Vee, right? And, and, and then the next thing we did was when we were starting Boast, we had to, we were forced to build the company by leveraging and creating a community. So community to me is bringing people together and helping them beyond your product or service. Like how do you figure out somebody's aspirations and goals and be there for them and support them to get to their destination, which may or may not involve your product, right? And that turns eventually into loyalty and evangelism and referrals and affinity and so on. And so the, the both story was when we started, and, and you know I'll say this again, looking back, it all looks like frameworks. When we were in the moment, it literally didn't feel like any of it. We felt lost and we were just throwing shit on the wall. And so when we started the company, a very niche product at the time. We help, Boast AI helps businesses who do product development get money from the government. If you're developing new products, tech, tax credits, right? R&D tax credits, exactly, right? And it's available in every country. Globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in R&D tax credits, innovation funding. Today, it's evolved from R&D tax credits to R&D funding because we raised a 100 million credit facility to give companies money for the R&D and now transforming into an R&D analytics company because we have this unique data set of your R&D data, your financial data, and your banking data. So now we can tell you what projects to invest in, who you should hire, how do you innovate faster. It's just still with the company, by the way, right? I see the, I see the, the jumper and yeah, all yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm not in the day-to-day. -day. I'm on the board of the company. Okay. The, the benefit of bootstrapping a company, though, 
And again, accidentally, because nobody would fund a company like that back in the day. So you're forced to bootstrap. But the benefit of bootstrapping a company is despite selling majority or 52% of the company, me and my co-founder still own 38% of a company that's growing really well. Right. Although the leadership is replaced, we we have two board seats, we're active. So, you know, I, I wear the t-shirt because I have, I mean, this is my company still. Yeah. But but nonetheless, when we started the company, we said, hey, who could use the service? Let's go after the big companies, right? The paying companies, manufacturing, construction, oil and gas. And we started hitting them up. And we were two guys in an apartment, man. Like imagine saying in 2012, hey, give me your data and I'll get you some money from the government. Either they're going to think you're a scammer or even if they know about it, they're like, why don't I just do it with my accountant? So it's very hard getting a hold of them. So we started going to their events. When we started hitting up their events, it just didn't feel like our tribe. It was awkward conversations. We couldn't vibe with them. We looked like two guys in a hoodie who who just accidentally threw on a suit. <laughs> so it just it just it, the connection wasn't there. And then we started hitting up all the startup events. And this was in a small town in Canada, in Calgary. I was in San Francisco. My co-founder was in Calgary. His wife was articling there. So we said we'll start it out of there. Mm-hmm. And hindsight, you know, that also ended up becoming a framework in many ways because you get to start small in a company, in a market that's not very crowded and you can really hone in and dominate, right? Like it's like find a beachhead, grow, then go to the next one, the next one. But as we started going to the startup events, we found that, hey, they're all entrepreneurs just like us. We're resonating. We're vibing with them. We started participating in hackathons. They became our friends. We became their friends. We started eating together partying together, we really got to hone in on on that ideal customer profile and figure out what the pains were. And very quickly, we figured out a couple of things. All the events we would go to at the time, the startup events in 2012, the conversations were all high-level CEO platitudes, right? You bring a CEO of a 20, 30, $50 million company because it was done by event organizers who wanted to sell, sell tickets. Yeah, And they're sharing these aspirational pieces of advice, which is not practical or tactical or helpful for a founder trying to get his first customers or first angel investor or launch the first product. They were not grassroots or like tactical enough for somebody zero to one, one to one to five. The second thing we realized is nobody wanted to support startups at the time, at least in that that city. The media didn't cover it. Other service providers would tell us like, man, you're going to go bankrupt selling to this market. I'm like, well, your customers won't buy from us. You won't service them. So only we can service our, our own kind. And I think, you know, fast forward 2023, us betting on the startup market worked out because it, that market grew well while oil and gas manufacturing didn't grow as well. Yeah. And I think hindsight is you got to always bet, have a contrarian view and hope it, it's right. Because, when, when, you know, Warren Buffett says, right, when everyone's running away from something, bet on it kind of thing. Right. Just, just You got to be right. So what we did was we, we, we had two things. The media won't cover this market. And... The, the conversations happening are very high level. So the advice they're getting is not great. It's not helpful. So we said, hey, you know, we've been in around startups before. Let's start hosting our own meetups. I'm, I feel fortunate though, you know, Aaron, because it's not in a time like where LinkedIn was very prevalent for B2B content or Instagram or any of that. Because I truly feel like, Today, even though you have big audiences on LinkedIn and social, 
it's very difficult to own that audience, right? If you don't have their email addresses yeah. and their contact information, if the algo changes, it's done. Your content uh, yeah. is visible to less and less of your audience. You're always like trying to figure out, oh, why LinkedIn? Why am I getting like 11 likes on this post and 500 on the other? And so it's really important that you own that audience. So I feel fortunate we started at a time where LinkedIn wasn't prevalent and all these platforms for distribution weren't. So we were forced to collect email addresses. So this is this was what we did. We started hosting our own events. Mm-hmm. We started bringing- These in-person speakers. events? These were online events? Like what were you doing? They were in-person events. They were meetups. We started hosting meetups and our invites were like, hey, Aaron, we're hosting an event with XYZ founder who grew his company to 5 million. They're going to talk about exactly the steps that it to get to the first 500K in revenue or first customers or do their first product launch. Very tactical. We got 10 spots at the co-working space. There's going to be some pizza. So our cost was like $20, $30 for the pizza. Mm-hmm. Awesome if you can come. So the conversations, the emails went from buy my stuff to this topic, which we, you know, in, in spending a lot of time as the founders, we knew exactly what they wanted to listen to. That one meetup turned into two, into five, into tens of meetups, and more and more people would show up. One day, that co-working space had 200 people show up. We hijacked all the aisles. We rented a cheap-ass uh, projector, put it in the middle of the uh, of the aisles. And then the guys running the co-working space at the end are, are like, listen, you can't run a mini conference over here. <laughs> right? <laughs> See, it's time to get out if you want to do these events. That... Those meetups eventually evolved into the traction community. And today, like 120,000 subscribers, we've had like Uber CEO come to our meetup, Atlassian's present and all of this stuff at our conferences and whatnot. So you got back, back to then, the CEOs, not just the the, uh, the workers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's <laughs> like, so it exploded um, over time. But when we we're doing it, we never, till 2015, it wasn't called traction. We we're just doing these meetups. We'd be just doing it, doing it, doing it. And so that just shows we never stopped. That's why it grew. Now, in parallel, what we did to grow the newsletter is I reached out to the local newspaper because everyone was complaining. We don't get any coverage. We don't get any coverage. Reached out to the local newspaper and said, hey, if you give me a column, I'll bring coverage to the startups here. And they're like, listen, we don't care. It's not a market we cover. So I went to a second tier regional blog and I asked them to give me a column. And those guys love it when anyone writes a guest column. I, I, I wrote it. I shared it with a few founders. They loved the coverage. They made it viral via number of retweets. I took that and I went back to the national newspaper and said, hey, uh, this column has got, this one blog post I wrote has got a lot of reshares. He's like, fine, I'll give you a column on the blog. So I write startup of the week very strategically as the first column rather than writing anything else. Because that was a time where like Neil Patel was banging, like all these other influencers, Jason Freed. So I'm like, what am I going to write? I'm not like an expert on anything, but I can cover somebody else. Yep. So I write startup of the week and I share it with the founder. Now the founder is like, I'm startup of the week in the newspaper. They go nuts sharing it. And it gets shared so widely in the city and around um, social that the editor calls me a couple of days later. And he's like, listen, this has really performed and I didn't expect it. I'll give you a print column if you commit to writing it every week. And I wrote that column for almost three years. But that print column actually sparked three things. One is I didn't want to blog on our website because I knew the SEO would take a long time to, to take. Yeah, We got a backlink for probably from probably the highest do- domain authority site in the country. It was a national newspaper. 
The second thing is we got social proof for our company, our brand, because now I'm a guest blogger. And now you're no more like two obscure guys trying to sell like a R&D tax credit service in 20, where it's like, I'm asking for your IP. I need credibility if yeah. I'm going to take that. The third thing, what it did is it created this interesting loop. Every Monday at 6 or 7 a.m., the founder would go to the newspaper stand, buy a bunch of print copies, because I don't know what it is, man. Even today, print is a legit thing. I don't think of it that way, right? But people associate print with being legit because there's so many blogs, but prints are rare. Yeah. So they started taking photographs of those prints and sharing it, and people would get shared. And so then we had this form where all the founders would now apply to be in startup of the week. So that list started growing and who would apply, I would invite them to the meetup. So it's like this boomerang that started growing our community. And over time, we were just adding more and more value to them. Startup of the week, tactical content, just two things. We didn't do like a hundred things. And that grew and grew and grew and eventually exploded into a conference and then during the pandemic, we took it all online, doing two live webinars and just the same thing, just doing one or two things consistently over time. So and do you, do, through do that. You, do, you, do you think the, the value and where that grew is because the content you were putting out was truly that valuable, meaning that the the, the ideas that the, the guests, you know, the, the startup of the week were sharing were that revolutionary and helpful? Or was it just the fact you were doing so many of them and each time it was the guest who was being highlighted himself was just creating you that that viral boost week after week. So meaning, was the value really in there, or was it just just keep boosting people's egos, which I guess maybe boost boost that AI, which you guys are doing? Is uh, is that what just led to the growth? Yeah. So I think the growth of the blog was just covering startups, right? Because uh, it was boosting their egos, so they were sharing it, yep. and that was the growth of the uh, of the column like the new, the startup of the week, which was driving everyone wants to get covered, right? It's social proof. It gives them, it gives an obscure startup credibility where yeah, in the sure. newspaper. And there was some advice points, but like, come on, think about it. Like a startup that's at one, two, five, 500,000, like their learnings will be very limited to what they say. Right. There were some learnings, but it was that. The value though, is once these people started coming to the meetups and learning tactical advice from the speakers, they would then connect with the speakers. They would connect with each other. They would connect with potential investors. They would connect with potential partners. So they started interacting with each other in the community and the value was from there. The startup yeah. of the week column was just an ego boost, like you said, for them. So they would share it. More people would subscribe to get themselves featured. Then they would come to the event. And then the event would actually drive the con the connections and the camaraderie. And, and that one-two punch actually brought us not only customers, but it brought us a lot of referral partners. And our as the company scaled from me doing sales to the next salespeople, our salespeople essentially became glorified community managers because they would go into our events or partnered events, co-hosted events, shake hands, kiss babies, be these brokers of resources. And then the conversation is easier versus buy my stuff. I, it's like, I can help you. And yeah. then others are like, yeah, they're the good guys. I'll take a conversation with you. Now, peeling back, there's three things that came out of that. Like, you know, when you think of spaghetti in the wall, looking back, what was the framework? Looking back, I mean, framework one was, I don't have a target market. How do I figure out who to target? I think one key is figure out a customer base and industry that you're really passionate about because building a company is a long slog. If you hate your freaking customers, <laughs> you won't survive, yeah. especially if you're going to build a community-led business. The second thing, is it a large growing market? 
The third thing is, do they have a propensity to pay for us? We were charging when they got the money. So that made it easier. And the last one is ease of access. So ideally we would have, you know, if we landed on manufacturing, we probably hit that or oil and gas, but there was no ease of access. And if there's no ease of access, no matter how much you love that market, mm-hmm. you're not going to take off. So, so that was the key thing. How do you decide which target market to start with? I think that passion and ease of access is a big one. The second thing is honing in on that market, spending time with them, figuring out where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep, and figuring out their aspirations beyond just problems, because problems will get solved day after day, right? Like that's the today, but the aspiration is the long-term and it'll help you add more and more products as you build a generational company. Um, And the third thing is figuring out the circle of influence, (laughs) which is who are the influencers they truly respect and admire? Mm-hmm. Build that list. That list will give you the people you want to invite to your meetups or your podcasts or your invest or your events as speakers. Who do they fund? Meaning what other service providers and silly products they buy from? So that will give you a list of people to bring as sponsors, partners, co-hosted events. And then where do they frequent? Meaning what platforms to distribute your content on? what blogs they read. And what was really interesting, and up until today, when we do our events, the bigger ones, I don't moderate any of the sessions on stage. I invite like Frederick from TechCrunch or John from Forbes, and we I I give them like three, four sessions. And so not only the speakers love it because they're being interviewed by the press, but the audience loves it because then they line up to get like, you know, potential... Uh, media uh, interviews with with TechCrunch, and mm-hmm. so that that framework of dominating the circle of influence actually worked really well for us because we started getting referrals. So I think looking back to those early days, I think those those three things were really important. And then the rest is a combination of consistency, creation, and communication. Right, communication is the rails of everything. You need to create for people to be able able to consume. And then the last one is consistency. A lot of people are not consistent. They just stop. If, if we stopped at the first event that had like nine people or 12 people, we'll probably not be here. If we stopped at the first live webinar that had 20 people, we'd probably not be here. You just I think to me, that's going. the biggest takeaway that I, that I was going to cut in with you before is, is that consistency and perseverance when things are still small and just to have faith, as you said, when you still don't know if it's going to work or not, you know, you're still, you know, traveling in the dark and no, don't, you don't know if you're going the right direction. But just keep sticking with it. Don't get discouraged by the fact that your numbers are small. But you know, you create that snowball effect, and and it gets bigger over time. Whether you're running a podcast, whether you're blogging, SEO, whatever the thing is, like you just gotta stick to your guns and, and keep going. And I know I struggle with that. I think a lot of other entrepreneurs struggle with that. But you know, it's impressive, you know, seeing what you did at that point when you didn't know what was working and you just stuck with it. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting is a lot of people they create content or they create and they just assume that they'll put it on a platform like a LinkedIn or a TikTok or wherever they put it. And they're going to, they're hoping that the platform will distribute it for them. It's on you to distribute it. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is don't discount the power of you pushing people to that piece of content. So, you know, the book, our book became top new release in a number of categories on, on Amazon. Remind us the name of the book. I know it's coming out in a few days, right? Yeah, the book is From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. So the digital is for 99 cents. And uh, so it's accessible to all. And the reason why I have it for 99 cents is I could put it for free, but then 
people won't be able to leave verified reviews and verified reviews is what drives distribution. Right. And then if so you if you're listening to the podcast will... right now, 99 cents, go to a lot of favorites, just go get it, leave them a review. At least just give them the 99 yeah. cents. It doesn't cost you anything basically and you're doing a big favor. So that, that's my awesome. ask for the audience right now. Awesome. So, so, you know, even with the book, right? The reason why it became a top new release in the last couple of weeks is because I reached out to community members to go and pre-order, right? In the early days, if I just put out an Eventbrite link, like the equivalent of posting on LinkedIn and hoping LinkedIn or social distributes for you is the equivalent of saying, I'm going to post an Eventbrite link and I'm going to hope that people see it and sign up. Yeah. You got to invite people. And I truly believe, man, if email didn't exist, Aaron, I don't think I'd be, I'd have a business or have be where I am today. Nine out of 10 things have come for me in life. Yes, I say community drove everything, but the way I seeded and activated the community is through email. I cold emailed you, right? Yep. I mean, I could have asked for, I could have asked for a friend for a referral. We have a number of connections, but I'm like, why ask for a friend for a favor when I can reach out, right? And yeah. that's, and that's you also how I Because I, I get pitched for the podcast a couple of times a day. Usually I just delete them, but yours also stood out to me and, and I wanted to meet you. So um, thanks. Well, you, you get good at crafting the email, right? That's what I say. Yeah. Like consistency, communication, and, and creation uh is is the key there. And then, you know, there's a bunch of hacks over time that you built. But what's really interesting is so in writing this book, I talked to so many people, rewatched all our content, looked into the guts of like hundreds of iconic companies. And the one thing I found common is every obscure small idea that eventually became a global phenomena went through the same four stages mm -hmm. from Christianity to CrossFit. <laughs> this is a big statement from Christianity to CrossFit. Every small idea that became a global phenomena had these four stages. People listen to you or buy your product or service. You have an audience. You bring that audience together to interact with one another. It becomes a community. When that community comes together to create impact towards a much greater purpose beyond your product or profit, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals over time, it becomes a religion or a cult. Mm -hmm. And so I, I distill those into 13 rules where you can you know, make the journey, hopefully to cult-like status. I haven't done it, but like <laughs> uncovered learning so many people, we stopped at community. and But it's a long journey. If you look at Atlassian, $40 billion, $50 billion company. Last year, their community self-organized 5,000 events. That's wow. insanity without Atlassian team being involved. So they gave them some love, a little budget here and there. So giving people the autonomy and the recognition and the soapbox is key. If they do it, if you can get your community to do it, now you got 5,000 super fans who've activated half a million people for your brand, but that didn't take one or two years for it last. And it took 20 years for them to get there. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, everything you said and the way you built your company and um, as you're explaining in the book worked well, you said you started that in like 2012. Yeah. It's so like a generation ago, essentially in the tech world, right? Exactly. So today today exactly. we're in 2023, you know, there's lots of communities, you know, it's, it's, everyone's kind of following some of these similar playbooks you kind of spoke about a couple, you know, principles, frameworks that are, you know, sound great, you know, very theoretical. Practically speaking, if, if you know, a tech company, a SaaS company today wanted to follow a similar approach to what you're doing, like, what, where would you go today? Like, how, how would you start from scratch where 
meetups are already a thing, you know, maybe people don't want to get together in person as much as they used to, where, you know, meetups were, were like, how, how do you translate this today with advice practical for someone wanting to follow this model today? Because we built the first playbook around in-person meetups, and then we rebuilt the playbook in 2020 around virtual. Okay. So had both, and, and then the playbooks of in-person grew us to 30K and the playbook of virtual grew us from 30 to 120, but then mm-hmm. I'll, you know, interviewed a lot, many brands for, for the book. I think where you start today is not any different than first principles we start 10 years ago is you start with the customer. Who's the customer? What are the problems? What are the aspirations? Figure out their circle of influence. Then there's a second step after that, right? Is understanding the kind of community you want to build. There's three kinds of communities you could build. You Community of practice is where people come together to learn about a specific skill. Like your podcast, people want to learn about marketing, HubSpot's inbound marketing podcast uh, or inbound marketing community, our traction where entrepreneurs want to learn how to become better entrepreneurs. So that's that's a community of practice around learning. The next one is a community of product where people learn about your product. You make them evangelists around your product. They come to build on it and so on. If you don't have product market fit and any customers that are using the product on a regular, mm-hmm. don't build a community of product. Otherwise, people will feel sold to, right? That's why we didn't build a community of product because one, Boast is a service that although, yeah, you integrate and we pull all the information year round, customers don't really use the product. Yeah. They plug it in and they get money once a year. Yeah. But so, so and in the early days, we barely had any customers. So we built a community of practice around becoming a better innovator, becoming a better entrepreneur. And uh, so so for most people, if you don't have product market fit or a product that somebody uses regularly, don't build a community of product, build a community of practice. The last one is a community of play, which is bringing people together to have fun, like a Harley Davidson community or a Red Bull community, Nike community, et cetera. So once you have that nailed down, you have your ideal customer profile, you got to write down like a hundred burning questions, right? What is what is the aspiration? And if I had to write the ultimate guide to get to that aspiration, what would be the chapters, subchapters, and topics? Mm-hmm. Then it's about creating content. Like step one, you got to build the audience. How do you do that, right? Like the best way to build the audience is to figure out where they hang out and how they like consuming content and then create there. And it's all about consistency. Now you can take one Zoom video like this and turn the video for YouTube, turn the audio for for a podcast, then split it up and turn it into reels, turn the right. text into LinkedIn. You can do any number of things and just be consistent. Once you start getting some semblance of an audience growing, then immediately you can bring them together, right? You can open these Zoom recordings to live AMAs. Honestly, at when the last time we did the live AMA, we're still getting four or 500 people sign up, right? And, and the... The thing is about being consistent, providing a relevant topic that's fresh, and then just being consistent. Mm-hmm. I love meetups personally. I talk about the science of senses. I know a post-COVID people don't like to meet up maybe, but I think that's actually not true. People love to meet up now than ever before because they were cooped up for two years. Uh-huh. And I'm seeing this in the conferences that we've opened up or the or any number of conferences are full. People crave person-to-person connection. If you look at 99% of the iconic brands, they've had human to human connection. That's that's what we crave. Yeah. So we're, we're sound and sight and we've connected quite well. If we were in person, we'd be taste, touch and smell. Yeah. And we'd probably stick around longer. We'd hang out. And like, it's just, there's something about coming together, hugging together, feeling the emotion, which is yeah. which is not present online. Right? You make me want to come to the bar and give you a hug and come hang out in person. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so that's that's how I see it. And then it's about picking the right medium. So a lot of people, what they don't do is there's a lot of low hanging fruit. I spoke to another founder earlier, and he's like, "We got 800 customers." I'm like, "That's great." And and he was like, "What kind of community should I build? Should I build a community of practice and teach them about?" So I'm like, "Dude, you got 800 customers. You have high retention, like 120 percent net revenue retention. Why don't you have a customer conference? Why don't you have like?" online AMA sessions? Why don't you like figure out a way for customers like, you know, to swag them up? You need to like give them the opportunity to share the love and make them feel valued. Why don't you do all these things? He's like, you're right. We never thought about it. Right. So you have, you have a customer base, you have a starting point. Imagine you do an event and you get like even 200 of your customers show and 50 of your prospects show. Your two, your 50 prospect, your, your 200 customers will warm up your 50 prospects and you'll walk away with guaranteed at least five clients. So that's, that's how it worked for us. Yeah. That, that's powerful. I mean, the, the idea of the, uh, the customer event, um, I don't think a lot of people think about it. I don't think about it, but you know, I'm thinking about a company I've been, I've been speaking with recently with a ton of very happy low churn customers. And I think that'd be phenomenal for them. Yeah, definitely. When you, when you have high retention, do a customer event. If you don't have any retention, that means you, you know, or, or low retention, your early days, you don't have product market fill, build mm-hmm. it around the learnings, the around the aspiration. Otherwise, yeah. build it around the product. And, and then it's a cadence thing, man. Like, it's like, okay, I send a weekly newsletter. I don't know. I mean, you're in the marketing sphere. How many of your customers before they came on with you were sending weekly newsletters? I feel like people, a lot of people just don't send newsletters anymore. Or they I, mean, I, think, I think a lot of companies do. Um, I don't do a lot of email marketing myself. I, clearly, I see I get a lot of companies sending me emails, but honestly, they're pretty boring. I don't open most of yeah. them when coming from the company. Um, I think the challenge is to make the, the content engaging. Um, and, and, and even within that, I think anything that a company is going to share, sometimes it's going to resonate, sometimes it's not, depending on where the, the mindset of the recipient is on that mm-hmm. day when it's hitting their inbox. Um, and every company is kind of implementing the the email newsletters a little bit. So I think the efficiency has died out because we're over overloaded with inner inboxes between the spam and the things we've actually subscribed to. But, you know, certainly it's one of the best ways to reach people. Um, yeah. And you, you can personalize it, right? So like we do a newsletter, but what I actually like doing even better is sending personalized emails from like a Mixmax or an Apollo, which actually looks like I'm sending it uh-huh. and then send, send, send conversational snippets. Like I would, like I sent you the email. Right. Yeah. It was it was semi-automated, meaning I yeah. used mixmax.com. I mass personalized it and and sent it at scale. So I'll send a piece of information like that. So it looks personalized and it looks like it's meant for the person. And I get like 70, I mean I can I can screen share, I get like 70% open rate on those. On cold emails like that pitching. Yeah, like I, right. I actually pull it up in a second. So the cold emails I I pitched you, and sometimes it's cold, but sometimes it's also inviting people to something right like hey i just did a podcast i'd love for you to check it out and 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 what is a newsletter effective you're informing people of something yeah right so so here i'm gonna i'm gonna show you just because i wanted to be in the truth here Go for it. so so here podcast outreach that i did on august 17th 72 percent open rate 66 percent open rate looks like nine and a half percent response rate as well which is also even better yeah. So, 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 and, and the only thing that's different there than a MailChimp is I think the email server service uh, servers, they see MailChimp as a mass newsletter, and this goes from your Gmail inbox. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're, it's going one by one at a 10 millisecond delay. 
and it looks very personalized. And that's why that bumps the open rate. And people are more likely to read it. It's like, oh, thank you. Thought of me. You sent me this personalized thing. Ask me to check out the podcast. And, and you've written the message like it's not for everyone. So that's actually worked really well for me. So, so you're doing that not just for the outreach for the podcast, but actually sending to your email list? Because tra- traction, you've got this 100,000 plus email list, yeah. right? You're not sending individual listings. That's just blasting, right? That's just blasting. Okay. And then within that, there's a subset of engaged people that I send every so often to me personally. Got it. And that gets a very, very high open rate. So that's, that's actually that's, a really, really interesting idea to, to sub-segment whatever your email list is, whether you're an influencer, whether you're a company, you've got your list, you're trying to grow it as big as possible, obviously, with your, your target MQLs and SQLs, ICPs. But then creating a sub-list within there of the most valuable people you know, that, that might be the ICPs out of the MQLs and then dealing with them a little bit differently, you know, segment them out from the main descent and then send them with a little bit more love and attention. Exactly. So, you know, the way I see that is, and and I put this in the book. So every community, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on any platform, will have 1% super fans Mm -hmm. who are like just very involved. They will have 9% maybe casual contributors and then 90% are lurkers. My newsletter, the 120,000 person blast is for the casual lurkers, right? The super fans, when I launch the book, they get a personalized email. Anything anything new that's coming out that's, that's fresh that I need their support, it's a personalized email, uh-huh. right? And so that personalized email, now I, I, I launched the book, my last few LinkedIn posts, those personalized email, Drove them like thousand likes and hundreds of thousands of impressions. So did you, right? you send for those personalized emails to these, you know, super fans? You sent them the link to your LinkedIn post and asked yeah. them for engagement on that. Yeah, I'm like, hey, I just launched a book. Would love to have your support. Boom, they they engaged on it. Uh-huh. Right now, now what I'll do is I'll run a campaign where I'll say, listen, the book's available for ninety nine cents. Would love to have your support, and uh, you know, I'll I'll send you a signed copy of the hardcover. Help me make it a bestseller kind of thing. If we do, if we do, and if, if we do the conference like we're going to do in 2024, the first email before the whole newsletter gets it is the super fans like, hey, do you want to volunteer? You have a spot. You're going to get a T-shirt, free access. If you're flying, we'll pay for the hotel room. You'll get you'll get to connect with the speakers and everything else. Uh, do you want to volunteer? The next one is, if you don't want to volunteer deeply discounted tickets, 80% off just for you guys. Then it goes to the whole press. So, and and that email goes from this mix max. It doesn't go from like MailChimp, for example. Uh-huh, interesting. But, I, but I'm I'm also interested in like Substack. So a lot of my friends are on Substack and uh, there's a lot of Substacks driving a lot of organic growth for having, just having a newsletter there. Cause it's like blog meets newsletter meets community, right? Yeah. So what happens is other newsletter creators follow you and then you support each other's newsletter by pushing each other's audiences. So you can import your audience on there. The open rate is pretty high coming out of Substack, but also you get audiences as a function of so many people on Substack now, mm-hmm. given it's a blog and everything else. So you, it's a good way to drive growth. My next text, test after the book is going to be trying to see how it works on Substack. I have friends who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars just just having their newsletter on Substack. Wow. People from free to paid just nice. by creating content on there. And it's not significantly different than the newsletter sending, right? Let's say you're doing a podcast. You send the podcast, but then maybe you do podcast plus. Maybe you summarize your top 10 learnings and then people subscribe and pay, pay to it. So I'm seeing a lot of action 
on Substack. I did a podcast on it, which I'll uh, with, with an influencer, which I'll release in a few weeks. I'll send it to you when that's yes. uh, when that's ready. Love to send, love to get on that VIP list you got over there and see what you're really doing. Definitely, I added you, and yeah, please email me your address, and I will share, send you a signed copy of the book when it's out. Nice, that'd be awesome. I've already bought the 99 cent uh, Kindle version pre-ordered. Definitely. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so sure. much. Awesome. Um, I'm going for an hour. I feel like you've shared an incredible amount. Um, you, usually I wrap things up. I have a quick little uh, little lightning round of some fast questions that uh, we'd love to have you answer just because it's the format that I usually go by, even though we've done things a little bit outside my normal process, but we'll wrap it up with a lightning round and then uh, we'll let you go. Um, so my first, well, this might be an easy one. Uh, what book would you recommend uh, listeners read? Let's go with not your book this time. Um, what Definitely. Books? So one of my favorite books, and I, you know, this writing this book was very hard for me because I didn't read a lot. But one of my favorite books is two. One is How to Inf- Win Friends and Influence People by uh, Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie. E- even Influenced by Robert Cialdini is a great one. I, I like uh, those two books a lot. And then from a communication standpoint, I like Made to Stick, mm-hmm. and I like uh, and I like um, Neil Rackham Spin Selling. So those books were very helpful for me. Spin selling is all about situation, problem, implication, need, payoff. It's a questioning framework to do a good consultative sale. Nice. Love it. Um, What's your favorite marketing or productivity tool right now? My favorite marketing productivity tool, honestly, is uh, for email. I use Mixmax and Apollo, but mostly Mixmax and uh, Notion for managing all the documents and everything else. Mm-hmm. just live by those two mix max for sending 90% of my emails are mix max. If I needed to scrape new email addresses then I'd use Apollo. And then for, uh, for managing, I mean, the whole book the events, all of that is a combination of notion and, and Google docs. Okay. And who's your favorite marketer or business leader that you're learning from these days? Ooh, favorite marketer business, business leader for me, Jason Lemkin, founder of Saster. He's yeah. been a great mentor. He wrote the foreword of my book. It's just, I don't know, every time I talk to him, I learn something new. So I think um, I think that's, uh, that's uh, I'd leave it at that. Jason Lemkin, that's, there's another founder that I admire a lot. His name is Sridhar Vembu. He's the founder of Zoho. It's just the way he built the company. He had bootstrapped the company. And when they got to, I think, seven or eight million, a big VC asked them to take funding. And he explored it. He looked at the term sheet. And, you know, every venture capital term sheet has a seven to 10 year exit clause. So he says, take that out. And they're like, no, it's a standard clause. And he's like, then I won't take your funding. And they say, you're turning our funding down. And he's like, yeah, I'm married to the company. Why do I need to sell it in seven to 10 years? And that funding didn't happen. And today, build a company, bootstrapped it to a billion plus in revenue while also building a pretty big community. So he runs Zoho University in Chennai, India, where they educate people from underprivileged backgrounds and customer success and marketing and so on, give them a stipend. And then at the end of it, they give them jobs in their own company at market rates. So those are inspiring stories. Yeah, they're building on on employees over there and their own team. Um, and final question I got for you is uh, where can listeners go to, I guess, connect with you, learn more about you and, and join your community? Definitely go to my LinkedIn, Lloyd Lobo, Traction Conf, if they want to come to any of the Traction events. And then the book is on From Grassroots to Greatness, but you also see it on uh, Traction Conf. 
Awesome.io. Yeah, tractioncoff.io. Yeah, a lot of ways to find the book. Definitely recommend people go check it out. Follow Lloyd on uh, on LinkedIn. He's got a lot of great content. I've been following him for the last few weeks since we met online, uh, thanks to his emails that he he sent to me and we've connected. Um, appreciate your time. This has been a great episode. Very unorthodox for the way that I usually do it. But the fact that we touched on so many personal things in life and parenting and business in the book, it's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you, man. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks again for tuning in and keep on growing your SaaS.